Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another very special episode of Ignite Radio Live. You are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio. How many of us go to Mass and we maybe ask the question, what's it got to do with me? What's it got to do with everyday life? It's a question, if we're all honest, we may all have. In the next hour, we're very excited to share with you our very first public belief and beverages night featuring Father Adam Hertzfeld talking about Dietrich von Hildebrand's classic liturgy and personality. Now, what are Belief in Beverages Nights? Very simply, they're a monthly occasion on the third Thursday at 6.30 p.m. to gather with other Catholics who seek not simply to know our faith more deeply, but to apply it. So we bring into it politics, education, business. If you want to find out more, we encourage you to go to massimpact.us forward slash BNB. Again, massimpact.us forward slash BNB. The registration is free. We'll begin tonight with a short intro, a great testimony by Drs. Jeff and Rachel Elmore of Turning Point Chiropractic, and into Father Adam's presentation. God bless you. We are so blessed by the call in this day and age to live vibrantly this relationship with Jesus Christ. And I might say as Catholics in particular, we are challenged to not simply know it or profess it, but to live it. And so I would say there are three objectives for these belief and beverage nights, which we hope to now do on a monthly basis. So prayer, encounter with the living God. Number two is that we're formed. On this side of things, we can always go deeper in that awareness of who we are in God. I want to be more fully formed. And so I'm going to, we're asking speakers to come who will speak to us truth that will form us more in our nature and mission in Christ. And in tonight, particularly with an understanding of God's design of liturgy, right? So prayer, formation, and the third thing is commission. We share a mission together. So I want to invite um, the Elmores. Jeff and Rachel, doctors Jeff and Rachel, they are amazing doctors with Turning Point Chiropractic. We love these people because they bring the wisdom that God gives humanity with the Spirit. You encounter a sense of God's presence. They are parents of four beautiful children and uh, been engaged in some of the things that we have to do to make our homes that place of encounter, very faithful Catholics. So I've asked them to briefly share a little bit of their experience and a mission, and then we will introduce Father Adam. Now, full disclosure, every time I say, I love my family.us, Greg has to give me $10, okay? So I'm going to try, try to sprinkle that in here, but I wanted you to be aware of my endorsements that I have, you know? So we got into being involved in this is because we really wanted our faith to come alive with our children. You know, we both grew up in a home where we checked the boxes. We went to church. We did this event. And then that was the end of it. And having our own children, we want more for them. We want them to every day have a God moment and to know it's alive in our family. Um, So we wanted to raise saints. And how do we do that? We thought we kind of knew, but then enter the Schleters. Mm -hmm. And we met the Schleters, and then we met one of their kids and another kid and another child and another child. And we were like, these are saints. How do we do this? And so they gave us the roadmap. If we could have talked to them and said, share us your tips on parenting. Um, when we did the road show, they basically said, here, you guys are going to do this for uh, once a week for six weeks, and we're going to see how it goes. And it clicked. You're like, you're doing this, and you're like, 
Ah, okay, okay. This is the roadmap that it takes. So if you go to ilovemyfamily.us and you print off the Live It Guide, it's a nice outline of how do we do it with our family. Now we have six little or four little ones, six and under. So sometimes it is 10 minutes of a hot mess. Some of it sometimes is 30 minutes of prayerfulness. But what we love about getting involved with our family was for us that we always talk about is the apology section. You know, I never know what my words or actions have on somebody else until they tell you. And so when one of my kids says, you know, dad, I was hurt by this. Oh my gosh, buddy, I'm so sorry. I did not know that that, that rubbed you that way. So, so it's a chance to correct it and rectify it right there. So it's not holding on to. Um, one of the other portion is it builds the kid's consciousness. So my six-year-old will come up to me now and he's starting to give me confessions, you know. Something is weighing on him and he knows if he says it, he'll feel a lot better. And so that's a very, very awesome thing to start. But in all honesty, what I get out of it the most is reading through the gospel. So you, you spend a little time, you read through the gospel for the week, and we get to say, what struck you? What struck out to you? And so we get to try to explain it to our little kids. And so dumbing down the faith to childlike right there is very, very impactful for me. And, and in all honesty, I'm wrestling a two-year-old during the gospel reading. So for me to come, come into it prepared, understanding um, this is what it is. I've had some time to focus on it. I had some time to pray about it. It's really, really good. And then I like to listen to the homily to say, how did I match up in explaining it to the kids? And um, I, Father Adam, I mean, you can't follow that. So he's, he's corrected some heretical ways in me. So, um, but, but no, we, we really enjoy it. It's even impactful for our two-year-old. Um, so before we did live it one day, um, he pushed our son, Mal Rocky pushed our son Malachi. And Malachi was pretty upset. And we're like, Rocky, did you, did you push Malachi? Nope. And we were like, come on, just, just let us, tell us, you pushed Malachi. No. And I was kind of getting frustrated. And I was like, just say, yes, I did. And he said, no, no, no. And we just let it set. We let it be. Live it next week when we had apology sections. We said, Rocky, do you have an apology? And he said, me push Mac. It was weighing on his heart for a week, and it came out at two years old. Like, how beautiful is that? So we're just so blessed. So we encourage you to do it once a week with your family, with your children. I mean, it's helping and striving our home to be open and love and love Jesus and our vocations. My vocation is to get to this guy to heaven and my children, and that is the guide, and we are so blessed to know it. And so that brings us to these little cards that um, Greg and Stephanie have made up called the Famdemic. Being practitioners, working with sicknesses and illnesses, I can tell you this is the biggest sickness and illness right now, is the sickness of the family. Um, so this is kind of like a mini speed live it. Um, this is five questions that we encourage you to sit down, talk to your friends, talk to your family about. Um, I think there's a challenge, try it every day for uh, five days. or And then that'll build into the live it guide that you can do. But on the back of this is, a, is an awesome prayer. And so we're actually just going to say this, and you repeat this prayer three times, one for yourself, for your family, and for the world. Aren't they great? One more round of applause for the Elmores. So Father Adam Hertzfeld grew up in, near Waterville, Ohio, on a farm. He went to Leal grade school and then Anthony Wayne before getting a BA in philosophy and theology from the great Franciscan University of Steubenville. Woo woo. Can we get a little bit of a reaction for that? And then he continued for his um, priestly formation 
and studied at the Pontifical North American College in Rome. But I have to say that those of us who um, are privileged to know his beautiful family, many of whom are here tonight, especially his mom and dad, um, we know that that's where he got his true seminary formation in his home. So we thank you for that. Uh, he was ordained to the priesthood in 2002, and for that we should get a little bit of applause and praise to God. And now here's where all the big words come in that I'll probably mess up and such, but he um, received a Bachelor of Sacred Theology from the Pontifical um, Gregorian University, and then his licentiate and doctorate in Sacred Theology, where he did his dissertation on a theme of von Hildebrand. So which brings us uh, to his topic tonight. I'll just end it with this. If I had to pick one person, Father Adam, who outside of our home, who most was the most influential in the formation of each of our children, we give thanks to God for you because you are that person. So that for that, we are forever grateful. And uh, in closing, I just kept thinking of the prayer that the priest prays as he elevates the body and blood of Christ during Mass, with the through him, with him, and in him. And you live that in your priesthood every day, Father. Everything is very evidently through him, with him, and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. And you give praise to God the Father. So we thank you for that. And um, we thank God for your priesthood. And we thank you for being here tonight with us to enlighten us on liturgy and personality. Well, thank you, Greg and Stephanie, for inviting me to give the talk tonight. Um, hopefully, it's an uh, interesting one. Um, it's probably going to be a little bit on the heavy side, but as I look around, I know pretty much everyone here, and I know you're all capable. So <laughs> I'll present what I present. And then for me, the best part of any talk is the dialogue that occurs after it. Um, I should probably get my glasses out because this is 10 font, and I've got 13 pages here. So... <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. It's not that much. I do have 13 pages, but it's not 10 fun, which is why I don't have to wear my glasses. So thank you, Greg and Stephanie, and also thanks again to the Cronins for hosting us this evening. There's three parts to the talk. The first part is just some introductory remarks. The second part is some foundational concepts. That's probably where it'll be like the most heavy, maybe. And then part three are specific points about the liturgy and our transformation through the liturgy and how it nourishes our personality. Um, I invite you to put aside all preconceived notions about anything that you've heard about the liturgy or about personality, because what I'm about to say probably doesn't have anything like what you have thought of previously. So um, anyway, part one, introductory remarks. So this is the book. Liturgy and Personality by this author, Dietrich von Hildebrand, who I'll talk about in a minute. The book is fairly slender. You could read it if you sat down and really worked at it within a day or two. Um, you'd probably not get anything out of it if you attempted to read it in that way. Von Hildebrand is a very deep thinker, and um, this particular book is chock full of genius. Um, uh, I was sharing with someone beforehand maybe not always most well-organized genius, but nevertheless genius. Um, the book itself was written and published in 1932 in Germany in sort of the time of ascendancy of Nazism, which I'll also talk about in a minute with respect to von Hildebrand. 
The first English edition then came out about a decade later when von Hildebrand found himself in the United States because of circumstances he didn't predict and certainly didn't desire. But anyway, an English edition came out and it's been republished in many different languages ever since. The latest edition um, is just a, a couple years old by the von Hildebrand Legacy Project and that project um, is dedicated to the reproducing of all of von Hildebrand's works some of which are not yet translated into English, but when all is said and done, it's probably around 25 volumes, uh, 25 volumes on topics of philosophy and spirituality. Now, the main point of the book is in the title, in a sense, how the sacred liturgy of the Catholic Church transforms and nourishes our personality. Now, a couple of facts about the author, this man Dietrich von Hildebrand. So I was first introduced to von Hildebrand my senior year in high school in a book that was called In Defense of Purity. Um, at the time, I thought, this guy is brilliant. Um, I didn't realize that I would go on to study philosophy at Franciscan under a number of individuals who would consider themselves students of von Hildebrand, and one of whom uh, was very personally close to von Hildebrand. And so I got to benefit from him deeply so much that when it went on to time to write the doctorate, I thought, I'm going to, if I have to work on this thing for two years, I want to find a topic that I really like. So I chose a topic in the work of von Hildebrand. Now, he was born in the late 19th century, 1880. However, his wife is still alive. Now there you might wonder, how is his wife still alive? How is that possible? She was his second wife, and um, she's about 30 years his junior. So when he um, ended up in the United States, um, he, um, uh, his first wife died just a couple years after they arrived here. And then about five or six years after that, he married his academic secretary, <laughs> Alice von Hildebrand, and she continues um, to live. She's close to 100 now, um, but she's brilliant in her own right. Von Hildebrand, even though he was born into a German family, he was actually born in the city of Florence in Italy, where the family had, um, you could say, uh, a small, not so small, villa, um, where his father um, was a sculptor. So his dad, who was not particularly religious, neither was his mom in any deep way. Um, they certainly, they also were not Catholic. Um, uh, his dad was independently wealthy on account of the family. And so he chose to spend his time sculpting. And he's a brilliant sculptor. You can see his works in Munich. You can see his works in various art museums throughout the world. Von Hildebrand's childhood was kind of idyllic. Um, he was one of seven children. He was the youngest and only boy in this family of seven kids. And he was exposed, you could say, to the best of the best that Western culture had to offer. So he was surrounded by, first of all, the beauty of Florence, which hardly um, He was surrounded by his father's art and plenty of other beautiful art. I mean, Florence has one of the greatest art galleries in the world in the Uffizi. And then um, he also uh, was born to a very musical family, and um, a family where both mom and dad loved the intellectual life. And so they invited individuals um, who were, you could say, at the pinnacle of the intellectual life of Europe in the end of the 19th century. Um, in fact, at one point, um, Queen Victoria was planning a visit to their villa in uh, Italy. Um, that visit never took place. Um, it, they split their time between uh, Florence and Munich, where the family also had another home. 
Now, from the young age, von Hildebrand was fascinated with the truth and with beauty and with goodness. And he was also very opposed to any kind of relativism in those areas with truth, beauty, or goodness. He always held to the fact of objectivity. And uh, that'll come out a little bit in the talk, or maybe even a lot of bit in the talk. It's interesting to note, though, that from the youngest of ages, he was very much opposed to relativism and held to the fact that there is a truth and we can know it, which baffles me, but still is a shocking position to hold. Even in the world today, we would think that it would not be so shocking to hold. So he decided to dedicate his life to the pursuit of truth. And so he um, spent um, his time then studying philosophy. He went on to earn his doctorate and then the additional degree in the German system, the habilitation in philosophy, and um, uh, spent um, his whole life teaching philosophy in various universities. Um, in the early 1920s, no, excuse me, in his early 20s, which was the early 19-teens, he converted um, to Catholicism basically from nothing. Um, one of his sisters had converted, and through dialogue with her and through dialogue with friends, that prompted him um, to convert. And eventually all the von Hildebrand children converted to um, uh, Catholicism, which is kind of interesting. The parents never did, and um, while they were good people, um, yeah, for whatever reason, faith never really caught on in their lives. So as I said, he enters this career as a university professor. He taught first in Munich. Then, because of life circumstances, he taught at the University of Vienna. Then, because of life circumstances, he taught at the University of Fordham in New York. Now, how did he get from Munich to Vienna to Fordham? The first two might seem easily enough explained because of the proximity to each other, but that even turns out to be, in a sense, by a miracle of God, by the works of the devil, he ended up at each of these places. Um, how so? So, as a lover of truth, he was hugely important contributing to what you could say we think and understand about many things, many important things, um, in particular about the human person. So, um, if you love Pope St. John Paul II and his theology of the body, you can thank Dietrich von Hildebrand in a major way for John Paul II's thought on the theology of the body because von Hildebrand anticipated the theology of the body by about 50 years. Um, so the good things that you find in John Paul II, you can already read in von Hildebrand, although, of course, von Hildebrand is not nearly as well-known or um, as popular as John Paul II. Um, so he made all of these different contributions to, um, you could say, our understanding of the human person, of ethics, and also of our own transformation in Christ. But at the same time, he lived it deeply. And it's his living it deeply which got him into great trouble. That's because he always fiercely opposed error wherever he found it. And so what does that mean exactly? So being a university professor in Munich in the 1920s, and crept up that he very quickly sniffed out and rabidly attacked. That error was Nazism. And so right away, he was put on a blacklist um, of the Nazis, and um, his life was in danger for how much he attacked them. Now, he attacked not in a way. He attacked the Nazis academically, intellectually, um, by constantly teaching against their philosophy, against their thought, and also by writing against it. Well, by the 
1930s, things had grown such in Germany that it was an impossibility for him to continue to live there. So um, he left. He left when Hitler became chancellor. So you have all these different people that with every new president that gets elected saying, we're moving to Canada. I've yet to meet anybody that's moved to Canada because of any president that we've ever elected. But von Hildebrand was a man of his word. And when Hitler became chancellor of Germany, he left. And so um, what's the quote? Someone here knows the quote better than I do. But <laughs> the family home, mansion in Munich, which he had inherited, he sold roughly for the equivalent of the cost of a box of fine cigars. Um, such was the economic state in Germany at the time. So pretty much without resources, he, his wife, and their only child, Franzi, moved to Vienna. Why did they move to Vienna? Because the chancellor of Austria at the time, Engelbert Dollfuss, was really the only statesman in Europe who was really also strongly opposing Nazism. So um, Chancellor Dollfuss um, gave von Hildebrand a job. He found him a position at the University of Vienna, and then he also um, uh, got him a job publishing an anti-Nazi weekly. Um, which they he did roughly for nine years or so. Um, so from the early 1930s until 1940. 1939, I think, or so, um, is when uh, the Nazis basically simply conquered Austria. And um, you should read, uh, this is an odd thing to propose, right? So The Soul of a Lion, it's the biography of the first half of von Hildebrand's life it's the biography of a philosopher, and you would think it would bore you to death, but it actually reads like a thriller, so I strongly recommend it. Um, it's Alice who wrote it, um, using his own, uh, using von Hildebrand's personal memoirs to write it. But by a grace of God, all three von Hildebrands managed to escape Austria at the time of the Nazi Anschluss. They made it to the family villa in Florence, where his sister lived, and then, um, very clandestinely, they worked their way back through Switzerland, then through France, then through Portugal, then through Brazil, finally to the United States, where he showed up in New York penniless, but with a couple of job offers. So those job offers, um, uh, eventually he chose um, to teach at Fordham because of its uh, Catholic and Christian identity, and that's how he um, spent out the second half of his life, of which there's no biography that you can read. So too bad if you want to know how part two turned out. No. We can know a little bit how part two turned out. In fact, um, he was known for his holiness, and he was known not only for his ardent opposition to Nazism, but once he got to the United States, his ardent opposition to communism and to secularization, and in particular secularization as it was worming its way into the church in the 1960s and, and 1970s. So you can read um, any number of different works that he wrote um, uh, opposing both Nazism and the secular spirit, the secular age. Um, so now, you could say the greatest quote that anybody, um, or praise that anybody ever gave von Hildebrand, I think comes from Pope Pius XII, who knew him personally. So the, the Hildebrand family and the Holy Father um, we're all connected, Pope Pius XII. Pope Pius XII referred to him as the 20th century doctor of the church. And so you're a doctor of the church only when what you have taught has greatly affected Christian believers um, uh, on account of its depth. Um, so that's a, a high compliment from this Pope Pius XII to say of von Hildebrand. The book itself is the fruit 
of von Hildebrand's life of faith. And so um, we could say um, he was a man who prayed deeply, and he did so daily. From the point of his conversion, he attended Holy Mass every day, and he also prayed the Divine Office, which I'll talk about later, what the Divine Office is. In this particular book, he wrote in 23 days, which I think explains the scattered aspect of it when I, when I try and read through, because I'm always looking for clarity, and if somebody says something here, and then they say it again over there. I'm like, why are you saying it here? Because you said it back there. So, but at any rate, we'll forgive him because the genius is worth uh, forgiving any scatteredness present in the work. Um, so that's enough on von Hildebrand. I want to talk about the relevance of the book today. So the book was written when the Mass was celebrated according to the rubrics of the Council of Trent. So um, if all you've ever known is the Mass as it's currently celebrated in its most normal way, um, you probably would be somewhat confused if you walk into the Mass celebrated according to the rubrics of the Council of Trent. And you might even say, I don't see how one comes from the other. It might be a little bit of a challenge to do that, but that's not my job um, to help you understand that. Um, but I'll, I'll talk again about that later. Um, nevertheless, the principles that he puts forth about the liturgy and about how it transforms our personality— um, those are certainly valid um, for the Mass as we currently experience it today. Um, now, Pope Benedict XVI, he did us a great favor, I think, with regards to the liturgy. So he's made it possible so that any priest can celebrate Mass according to those rubrics of the Council of Trent anywhere, anytime. And so what he did was he made the distinction. There's the ordinary way in which the Mass is celebrated, like we all experience in our parishes on every Sunday. And then there's the extraordinary way, and that's according to the rubrics of the Council of Trent. And so by putting those two forms together, one is meant to enrich the other, so the liturgy itself will be enriched. I could go on and on about that, but um, I won't. Um, to attend an extraordinary form mass, though, however, would give deeper insights into what von Hildebrand is saying in this book, Liturgy and Personality. Um, now, why is the book relevant? I think it's very relevant for many reasons, but the greatest is the fact that we are living in a culture that is increasingly and increasingly secular. And by secular, I mean it's increasingly distancing itself from God. Um, that is going to result in tremendous troubles. It already has, and it'll only continue to grow So, insofar as the culture continues to secularize. And it will harm personalities. Those personalities that it will harm the most are those of the young. So parents, be particularly attentive to that aspect and know that your kids are being raised in a secular soup, and that soup is distancing itself ever more and more from God. And so through things like mass impact, rage against that, and God will provide. Now, um, if we want to understand this work, Liturgy and Personality, then we need part two of this talk, which are foundational concepts. And here is maybe where it gets the most tricky in terms of understanding von Hildebrand's thought as it corresponds to reality and getting at what it is exactly that he means. And so I want to offer three definitions and if you could get these definitions down, then you could read, you know, this work and uh, understand it with ease. Um, but the first definition, if you could get it down, you could read any of von Hildebrand's work and really understand it with ease. And that is something that we call value. Now, again, take whatever you think about the word value and throw it out 
and just try and rethink the thing according to how von Hildebrand sees it. And I think how von Hildebrand sees it is completely the truth. So what is this thing which von Hildebrand calls value? So he gives this description of value somewhat in this book, but in other books he gives it more fully. And it is a great contribution to our understanding of reality, especially our understanding of ethics, what makes something morally right or morally wrong. Without it, without von Hildebrand's contribution to this understanding of value, we end up with relativism, as far as I'm concerned, and I'll argue that till the day is done. But what is this thing, value? Simply put, value is something, a reality, that possesses importance in itself. Now, this is not that hard of a concept to grasp. And so we'll see if I can bring you through it, if I can give birth to this notion of value inside your own mind and heart. Something that possesses importance in itself as opposed to something that possesses its importance only because I give it its importance. Let me say, now what on earth is that? What, what could that possibly be? Let's go to an example. I like, as my mom and dad well know, chocolate ice cream. <laughs> Serve me up any other kind of ice cream, and I don't care. I probably won't accept it, but if you serve up chocolate ice cream, I will accept it, and happily so. There are people who do not, to my great amazement, like chocolate ice cream. <laughs> the importance of chocolate ice cream as a thing, as a reality, that importance rests in me. I give chocolate ice cream its importance. It has a particular set of characteristics which appeal to me for whatever reason I know not. And so I say I like it. It, it appeals to me as a subject. It is subjectively satisfying is the title that von Hildebrand gives it. That is over and against something that holds importance in itself. Now what might an example of that be? Here we are in a room full of such importances. The human person, right? That's probably the easiest importance in itself to grasp. The human person possesses importance in his or her own right, not because I or you give the human person their importance or their value. And so that is intrinsic to the being who is the human person. And anybody that can't see that doesn't mean that that importance doesn't exist. It simply means that they are value blind. They're blind to that importance. It'd be like if you were congenitally blind and born into the world physically blind and deny the existence of color. The rest of us would say, well, there is such a thing as color. I see red, I see blue. Well, I don't. Well, you don't because of a difficulty on your part. But nevertheless, color exists. And so does the importance of the human person. There are many such values in the world. Right, So the human person is what von Hillebrand would call an ontological value, a value of being, of a substantial being, a being that exists. And um, it doesn't have to necessarily be a physical being, but we happen to be. There are other values which von Hillebrand calls qualitative values. For example, justice. Justice is something that is important in itself, not because I give it its importance, but because it is really important in itself. And these things that are important in themselves, these values, all of them demand that we respect them for what they are. Now, some of those values, they make their demand in a rather light way, right? So beauty 
is a value that possesses importance in itself. And a beautiful, let's say, one of von Hildebrand's dad's beautifully carved statues was sitting right here. And you come in and you say, oh, that's nice. You know, the value speaks to us. The beauty speaks to us. And what does it demand from us or ask of us? Appreciation. To say, oh, yeah, that is beautiful. Now, if it was ugly, then it's a disvalue and it demands that we denounce it for ugliness. But if it's beautiful, it asks us to respect it as such. Now, in the case of this demand, it's a pretty light demand, right? A person is not terribly worse off if they don't see the beauty. Some values have an extremely high importance, and the demand that they make is also extremely high. The highest of those are moral values and morally relevant values. I won't go into the distinction between the two, but you can just simply say this, that for some values, they call out to us to respect them, and if we fail to respect them, we become morally tainted as evil. And so to not give the due response is to commit a grave sin. Now, again, the human person is a morally relevant value in that regard. The human person, like the example that I like to use, is I'm, if I'm at a, a, a party, and it's in somebody's backyard, and there's a pool, and it's hot, and I like the chocolate ice cream. And so I see over on a table on the far side of the yard, there's some chocolate ice cream set up, and it's calling out to me, Father Adam, come, eat, enjoy. And so that's valid. I can do that, right? So I'm making my way over there. And now a little kid falls into a swimming pool that's in this backyard and sinks to the bottom. Obviously, they can't swim. Now, here is another type of importance, the importance of the human person, this little kid. And they're at the bottom of the pool. It also is now calling out to me, Father Adam, save me. Which importance do I respond to, right? And so this helps us get at the distinction between Importances and sin, what sin is. Sin is when we choose an importance that is merely subjectively satisfying over an importance in itself, right? And if I fail to save that kid on the bottom of that pool, then I am objectively tainted as an evil person for what I have done, for failing to give the right response. So this is, we could say, what von Hildebrand means when he speaks of value, something which is intrinsically important in itself. Now, When we give the right response to a value, what happens? We transcend ourselves, and that's a big deal. The human person is not made to be turned in upon himself, but is made to transcend himself. So the classic definition of sin is to be turned in upon oneself, and I've often thought that that is definitely what hell would be. Hell would be for the person who is so turned in upon themselves, they can't appreciate anyone else over and above themselves. They can't appreciate God, and they can't appreciate their neighbor. And so God respects that decision to not appreciate anyone beyond oneself and say, okay, you can be like that forever, and that would be hell, right? Who knows how they experience it? They probably experience it as such because after a while, I'm sure they get tired of themselves. But whenever we give the right response to a value— we go outside of this self-centeredness and we encounter something greater than ourselves in a value um, by giving that right response. We transcend ourselves and therefore we are enriched. So we become quickened as persons, you could say. Um, we become uh, more fruitful, as von Hillebrand would say, as a personality. Um, so 
God makes us for union with these kind of things. He makes us for union with values, and therefore, that's going to have something to do with our personality, but we'll get to that in a minute. Okay, so that's the first definition. What is value for von Hildebrand? Second is the definition of the liturgy, the sacred liturgy. So what von Hildebrand means by liturgy is simply the official prayer of the church, the official worship of God by the God, who he has chosen to be his own. And this official worship refers fundamentally to the Holy Mass, but also the divine office. So now, what is the divine office? So the divine office is the recitation of the Psalms primarily, but other scripture readings as well, and some of the writings of the saints. Um, that is the official prayer of the church. And so um, that divine office is prayed daily, and it's prayed seven times a day, spread throughout the day. And anyone, any of you, and some of you I know do, pray the divine office, but some of us commit ourselves by way of an oath or a vow to pray the divine office. So priests, deacons, um, religious, commit themselves to praying it, either all of it or in part. And so like of the seven, you could say, times of prayer, a priest like me, a diocesan priest commits to praying five of those every day. Um, uh, monks in, in a monastery, they commit to praying all seven of those every day. So that is what the divine office is. Now, this thing, the sacred liturgy, so in particular, Holy Mass and also the divine office, this worship of God is not a mere human construct. I think that's a, a big deal. Um, anybody that knows me well knows that I'm always raging, like von Hildebrand, against debasing the world and culture and truth to mere human constructs that is simply created by the human person um, with no other basis or founding in reality. Um, that is much of what drives our culture today in what is called postmodernism. Postmodernism sees every institution, every truth, every reality as a mere human construct, and if we don't like it, we can deconstruct it, and we can construct it anew in a way that we do like. So simply put, that's postmodernism, and I rage against it. Although, I like to say, if I wasn't who I am, I would be Jewish second, and if I wasn't Jewish, I would be a postmodernist. <laughs> so even though I rage against it, <laughs> there are some truths in postmodernism that, that I like. Um, so the liturgy is not a mere human construct, but it is a construct coming from God and also the culture which God chose to work within in terms of his revealing of himself through a particular culture, a particular people, a particular time, and a particular space. And we call that Judeo-Christianity. And so this thing which is at liturgy, which is the worship of God, arises from the encounter between God and his chosen people, an encounter which presents itself to us in the story, which is divine revelation, that true story, which is divine revelation, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. And so in this sense, we can say that the liturgy is the work of both God and humanity. And we can say it is first and foremost the encounter with and the worship of God as God, and as God deserves to be worshiped as he has revealed himself to us to be, and also as he has revealed himself to us to worship. So he tells us how to worship himself, right? And as the supreme being, he has every right to do that. 
Um, and in fact, that's what he's dictated with all values because God as the supreme being is also the supreme value. There's no value greater than him. And he's also the source of all value. He's the one that gives every value the response that it deserves. So that's what the sacred liturgy is. Our sacred liturgy has taken millennia, thousands of years to develop by the workings of God and the Holy Spirit and the cooperation of his people. Okay, next, definition of personality. So by personality, von Hildebrand does not mean what we usually think of personality. For some people, they mean personality is a strength of character, a person's ability to lead, be a leader, dominate others. For others, personality means that it's their capacity to attract. Oh, that's a winsome personality, or is he's humorous. People like him because of that. Or for others, personality could mean something in the negative sense. That guy's quirky. Yeah, he's a personality. Or it might even be pathological. Stay away. Keep your kids away from that personality. That guy's a freak. So von Hildebrand does not buy into any of that as personality. He gives a philosophic description. It consists of two aspects. The first aspect, neither you and I can change. It is a pure gift. It's been given to us, and we can't fix it. We can't change it. We can't make it any different, and it has to do with the fact that we're persons. And so he calls that our basic spiritual endowment. And it's the fact that on our spiritual side, so we're body and soul, and on the soul side, we have three centers that are irreducible to each other. They're, you can't reduce one into the other and say that one is a subset of the other. Um, and that they each play a hugely important role in what it means to be a person and what it means to be a human person. Those three centers are the center of knowing, our intellect, the center of willing, our free will, and the center of feeling or the center of affectivity, which is the heart. It's those three things that are our spiritual endowment, and we can't change that. If you're a human person, you have it. You can't get more. There's not a fourth center, and you don't have less. It's not like you lack one of those centers, although maybe you could argue that the sociopath lacks the heart. I don't know. Um, now, for each one of us, what we're given in terms of intellect, will, and heart does vary, right? But again, we can't change that either. So some people are gifted maybe with a strong intellect and others with less. Some people are gifted with a strong will, others with less. Some people might be gifted with strong affectivity, others with less. But the point would be is that the endowment which we're given, we can't change, although we can develop the intellect or the will or the heart that we were given. Of course, that makes sense. So we have these three centers, and that is part number one of our personality. Now, Part number two of our personality is our link with the objective reality of value. That von Hildebrand says that is what makes for a true personality. The person who can drink you under the table is no greater a personality than the person who has never had a drink in their life. Who cares? There's nothing intrinsically important about that maybe bragging rights, and those are not intrinsically important. But the person who gives the right response to things which are important in themselves, in particular the most important of the important things, moral values and spiritual values, that is something worth caring about. That's something worth honoring. That's something worth saying, now, wow, that person, that's a real person in their fullness. So that's part two is how does he put it. So we could say for the person who every time they encounter a value, they give the right response, that develops them, forms them, quickens them as an authentic personality, and then we would add in Christ. 
right? Because Christ is the, the fullness of what human personhood means. Now, so um, those are the two things that he brings together um, in this aspect of personality. What we are basically and cannot change, and then also how we interact with this world of value. And so the world is full of value. It's all around us. We're interacting with it all the time, whether we believe it or not. Even if we're a relativist, it doesn't matter. Relativists even still live their lives according to value. Commit an injustice against a relativist, and they get angry, <laughs> right? And we say, well, why are you angry? You know, there's no such thing as objective good or evil. Why should you be angry? I should be able to do whatever I want to you, and too bad. You know, they, they can't explain why they're angry. Uh, but they're living by value, that's why. So the second element of personality is within our control. We can and we should recognize and pursue the encounter with value, and then we should always seek to give the right response to it. And when we do so, we're enriched. We become ever more fully a true personality. Now, I'm almost done with this part two, and I want to make a very important foundational point. Good people might be tempted to approach the sacred liturgy in order to become holy. That is a mistake. Now we say, now why is that? I thought I was supposed to become holy. Shouldn't I want to become holy? I say, it's a mistake in this way. If our primary reason for approaching the worship of God is so that we might be transformed in our personality so as to become holy, then we have missed the point of the worship of God. Now, how can we put that in even more easily understood terms? It would be like a husband telling his wife, I love you because of who you make me to be. I don't love you for any other reason. I only love you because who you make me to be. I think we would say that's sick. Don't you love your wife because of who she is? Doesn't your wife deserve to be loved simply for who she is? It might be true that she makes you a better person. And maybe, just maybe, you could have a secondary motive of loving your wife because she makes you a better person. But if that's your primary motive, that's wrong. That's sick. So if our primary motive is to enter into the worship of God so that God transforms us and makes us holy, that's not right. That we have to enter into the worship of God for the spirit of the which is precisely to love God for who God is and to give him the proper response that is due him. And so what is that proper response? It is praise. It is adoration. It is bowing down before the all-holy one, the supreme being who is greater than any other being and who is going to one day also be our judge, and yet who pours out upon us mercy and superabundance, and for that we are also grateful. So that would be this important foundational point. Don't dive into the sacred liturgy um, just so that we can be transformed. Okay, part three. Specific points on our liturgical transformation and nourishment. So what is the liturgy? The liturgy is our response to the supreme value who is God. Through the liturgy, we come to understand who God is ever more fully, ever more deeply. And then through the same liturgy, we come to worship God, that is to give him the right response that he deserves. And then when we do this, it transforms our personality and it nourishes us. Now, von Hildebrand, he talks about eight different ways in which that occurs in his book. I'm just going to touch upon a couple, three here. And the first of which is that liturgy fosters communion. 
So what does that mean? Well, first of all, the human person is made for communion. This communion is first and foremost with God, right? And we can look at our own personal interior experience, but Revelation tells us as much. God made us for himself. We are also, though, made for communion among ourselves, which we can find also in divine revelation. We can look and we can see that God says it is not good for man to be alone. So God makes us for himself. He also makes us for one another. We are also, though, made for communion with value. That is, it is meant to be that which helps us transcend ourselves and which enriches us. It is value how we are made like God. Have you ever wondered what on earth does that mean, you know, to be divinized, to be a child of God, to become ever more and more like God? It is by corresponding our lives to value. That's how we are made like God. So he made us for communion with value, and he invites us into that communion with it. And so the liturgy then is fundamentally prayer of communion with him, with neighbor, and also with value. Um, it's ordered towards this union with those three things. And we can even look at the prayers of the liturgy. What dominates the prayers of the liturgy? The collective aspect, the, the we. Um, even where it seems I dominates prayer within the liturgy, it is still an I that is within the corporate mystical body of Christ, which is the church. So we say, well, where does that happen? Um, the creed, we say, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. That's actually a profession a double profession, I as the individual making the act of faith, but also I as part of the mystical body of Christ making the act of faith. And we can't make the act of faith without the grace of God so that the I also becomes a we. So the liturgy is made for communion. And when we enter into it with the proper spirit, we enter more deeply into communion. You probably all have thought this before. If you haven't, you should. No one ever prays the liturgy alone, right? It's why the church strongly discourages priests to celebrate mass alone. She doesn't say that it's impossible, but what she says to the priest is that try to have another person praying with you. But even if the priest does celebrate mass alone, he's not alone because he's united with Christ and he's also united with the church in a mystical manner. All the angels and saints are present at each and every mass that he celebrates. When someone prays the liturgy of the hours, and the prayers that they attach to that official prayer, which is the liturgy of the hours, the divine office, those prayers are united to all the prayers of the believers throughout the whole world um, that are praying that same liturgy of the hours. And so in this way, we could say that the liturgy is meant for communion, and it fosters co communion within us, and it helps to grow our personality as such. Now, in that regard, we can also speak of the barriers of separation, which are sin, that those fall away also in the sacred liturgy. But I'll talk about that more in a little bit. So we remember true communion among the members of the human family ultimately is only possible in Christ. And it finds its fulfillment in this world in the sacred liturgy before it's a foretaste of the, the real union, communion with Christ and with one another in eternal life in heaven. So that's one aspect in how the liturgy enriches our personality. Another is with, we could call it the virtue of reverence, that the sacred liturgy cultivates the virtue of reverence. 
What is reverence? So I would argue that the irreverent person is incapable of worshiping God. Reverence is the fundamental attitude, now I'm quoting von Hildebrand, towards being, and in particular towards value, in which one gives all being the opportunity to unfold itself in its specific nature and in which one neither behaves as its master nor acts towards the spirit in a spirit of familiar conviviality. So von Hildebrand is a great way of, poetic way of speaking. But in other words, the reverent person perceives a thing for what it is and allows it to be what it is. It allows that other thing to unfold itself, manifest itself to me for what it is, and then I respect it for what it is. So anybody who's a parent knows you have to do that with your children. If you don't do that with your children, if you treat your children like cookie cutters, um, they're going to turn out all messed up, right? You allow each one to be their individual self and allow them to unfold. Now that individual self happens to, the true self corresponds to the, the mind of God for that individual. So they might stray from that and then you say, oh, we've got to help that individual get back onto the path of the true self, the mind of God. But the sacred liturgy cultivates this reverence. Um, it does so first and foremost with respect to God, the supreme value and the source of all values. The sacred liturgy allows God to reveal himself to us for who he is and then pulls from us the right response to that revelation. Um, and that goes back to how we, we have the sacred liturgy through its organic development through the millennia between God interacting with his chosen people. So the reverent person is going to perceive God for who he is and going to respect and honor him accordingly, and that the liturgy is struck through with this. Now, I have two passages here. Normally, I don't like to read long quotes from any author, but this is worth it, um, and it might give you a taste for the book and what you'll find if you choose to read the book. So how von Hildebrand describes reverence within the Holy Mass. The Holy Mass is especially penetrated with the spirit, the spirit of reverence, the necessity of sacrificing to God. So we live in a world that's totally opposed to any kind of sacrifice, right? But God is the supreme being. Actually, his being, the supreme being, demands from us the response of sacrifice. And what is that? It's putting ourself aside and letting him reign. That's what sacrifice is fundamentally. So in the liturgy, we understand the necessity of sacrificing to God. The impossibility of offering him adequate sacrifice because of our poverty. That the only real offering that can be made to God in its fullness is the offering that God himself provides when he becomes the lamb of sacrifice. Um, so that's another aspect of the liturgy. The sacrificial prayer of Christ in which we are allowed to participate, that's him being the lamb. We find the spirit, too, toward all that enters into contact with the Lord's holy body in the handling of the paten and the cleansing of the chalice. So um, that's more evident in the extraordinary form of the mass than in the ordinary form of the mass. But how reverently anything that comes into contact with the body and blood of Christ is treated by the priest. We also find it in all that symbolizes Christ or is dedicated to the divine service. For example, the kissing of the divine altar, which the priest does as he enters and exits, and the gospel book, which we do after we proclaim the gospel. It is expressed in the bodily comportment of the priest, of the faithful, and the religious, in standing up during the gospel reading, right? To stand up shows respect for something. In bowing, 
our head, for example, when the name of the Lord is said. The fact of the harmonious structure and order of the liturgy, extending even to outer comportment, contains a profound element of reverence. This unique organic structure, corresponding so clearly to the adequate inner attitude of one who stands before God, is the opposite of slackness, which is mostly what we see today, and in equal measure is opposed to the attitude of military or athletic drill. So von Hildebrand makes the argument that reverence is natural to the human person. There's a naturalness to the reverent person as opposed to any kind of, uh, you could say, stiff rigidity on the one hand or a casualness with value, especially the supreme value, which reduces the supreme value to nothing but a buddy, right? That, oh, God's my father. No, I think you think God is your grandfather because he's never going to, like, get you in trouble or anything, but he's actually is your father, not your grandfather. Get rid of the casualness. So so that is um, uh, this way in which reverence is presented in the sacred liturgy. As I said, it organically grew out of the manner in which God has interacted with people over the course of time, and it's not hard to find that in the sacred scriptures, right? So let me think of an example. One first example is Adam and Eve, right? Once they've committed their sin, their original sin, um, they have shown themselves to be turned in upon themselves and not oriented towards God. This cannot survive in the presence of God. They're not giving the proper value response, and so they're booted from the garden. That shows itself up over and over in the sacred scriptures, which is whenever anybody experiences the manifestation of God to them, they respond with fear and trembling. What did they say? Like the call of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. So Isaiah, he's praying in the temple, and he's snatched up into the heights of the temple to a revelation of God. And what does Isaiah respond with? Oh, this is so awesome. Praise be the Lord. You know, he doesn't. What does he say? He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips from among a people of unclean lips. He knows he's not worthy to be in the presence of God. He possesses reverence towards God as the supreme being. And, of course, God then sends an angel with a hot coal to burn his lips to signify that he purifies him so as to be able to be present. Um, which is also a process that we go through in the sacred liturgy. Um, we confess our sins up front, right, with the penitential act, and we do that several times over the course of the Holy Mass. So um, that's one example. Now, lest we think, lest somebody say, oh, that's the Old Testament God you're talking about, Father Adam. First of all, that's heresy. But secondly, <laughs> it's not just the Old Testament God. The New Testament is struck through also with these examples of reverence. Look at how St. Peter responds to Jesus when Jesus calls him in Luke's gospel, right? So Luke's gospel, chapter six, the, the magnificent catch of fish, fish, the miraculous catch of fish. Once Peter sees this, he realizes this is the Lord. And what does he do? He goes down on his knees in adoration, right? And also represents this idea that he's not worthy to be in Christ's presence. And Christ immediately rejects this, says, oh no, you don't need to kneel in front of me. No, he doesn't do that does he? He lets him do that, but he also tells him not to be afraid because he's calling him to a new life in Christ, and then he gives him the mission to be a fisher of men. So, at any rate, reverence is struck through the sacred liturgy, and that's why it's also struck through, or struck through the sacred scriptures, but that's also why it's struck through the sacred liturgy. Um, okay, last one here in terms of how the liturgy affects our personality is what von Hildebrand calls wakefulness. Wakefulness 
is the state of being spiritually aware of the world of values and actively opening ourselves to their splendor. So if reverence is letting the thing speak to us, wakefulness is like preemptive to reverence. Wakefulness is the reverent person actually going out and actively seeking this world of value, letting it, you could say, um, letting it reveal itself to us so that we do give the proper response, and then secondarily, we are enriched. So there are, now this gets <laughs> von Hildebrand. If you read deeply in von Hildebrand, you'll see that when he talks about a topic, he always also talks about the opposite of the topic. And um, he tends to be quite harshly critical, and then when you read that, you say, wait, that applies to me. But it, I'm sure he also thought it applied to himself. So some good people, he says, are not wakeful, but spiritually asleep. Now, he says, they might possess good character and goodwill, but they let life carry them along, and they miss most of the glory that is present in the world. Now, he has a special way of calling such people. He says, they possess the bovine attitude. <laughs> that is a cow-like approach to life, being content merely to graze upon the hillside, never looking up, from the grass that is before them. Now, if something of great importance happens to push itself between them and their next mouthful of grass, they'll deal with it, perhaps appropriately, but otherwise, they could not care less. So, I suppose there's plenty of bovine personality in the world, and at times, I'm that bovine personality. The wakeful person, though, is very aware of his situation in life. Von Hildebrand calls it our metaphysical situation, which is that we are finite beings, not infinite, that we are weak and short-lived, and that there is a God, there is an afterlife, there is a judgment. And so the wakeful person sees all things that happen in their lives according to the light of God and his kingdom. Whereas the bovine personality forgets the truth, beauty, and goodness present around him and becomes absorbed in the baser things of the world. The wakeful person is on the lookout for value and is anxious to give the right response. Von Hildebrand said to his wife as he was nearing the end, if I should ever not give the right response, then you know the end is near. He died giving the right response. He died in prayer, singing the Te Deum, actually, with uh, his closer friends and his wife at his bedside. Now, the liturgy is full of wakefulness. So we pray the divine office over the course of the day. Why? Clearly, because to pray it all at once takes too long. No, that's not why. We pray it because we want to sanctify the whole day and by praying it over the course of time, it prompts us to be on the watch for the workings of God. Now, if you go to a rigorous monastic community, if you make retreat, for example, in a monastery, the most rigorous of those communities will rise at 2 or 3 in the morning to begin their prayers up for the day. So matins is what that particular is called. And why do they do that? Not as a penance for their sins. That could be a secondary motive. But they do it primarily because they want to be ready to encounter God. And even to encounter God that today might be the day that our Lord returns in his glory, right? And so that's why they get up. They have this wakefulness about them. So wakefulness is the opposite of fleeting thoughts and good intentions. The wakeful person is consistent in the attitude of being vigilant. So probably for most of us, we're wakeful some of the time. If we were a saint, we'd be wakeful all of the time. 
Now, he has a couple things to say about liturgical prayer versus spontaneous prayer. Certainly, he recognizes the good of both, but he says liturgical prayer is superior. Why? Because it brings us back over and over again to the most important themes. It reminds us of our metaphysical situation as creatures who are short-lived. And so that's where liturgical prayer has, in a sense, primacy over spontaneous prayers. The person who prays the divine office every day can't fail to forget to praise God. So that or wouldn't forget to praise God um, because he's praising God for who he is. That's what the Psalms tell us, who God is and why we praise him for his goodness. And then the person who enters into the spirit of the Holy Mass can't miss the fact that we're sinners. There's several times through the course of the Mass that we profess that we are sinners, but that we are also still blessed by God's mercy, and so that's all part of wakefulness. Conclusion here. Just a couple of last thoughts. Um, so in the book, there's a lot more that we could glean from it, and so if you choose to get it, great. Um, don't give up in trying to read it. You know, With von Hildebrand, the key is that you keep plowing through, and then once you've plowed through it enough, something like breaks in your mind, and then everything uh, begins to make sense after that. It's just a manner of how he speaks and how he puts things together. Um, so um, I want to end just with a, a quote. Again, it's extensive, which I don't normally like to do, but it is so beautiful, um, and it, it speaks to this element of being transformed in Christ through the sacred liturgy. The way to true personality, and he says some challenging words in this, does not lead through the formation of, of a technique of the will, a decomposition of life into a series of separate cramped acts, or a partitioning of our relations with God into momentary, inorganically linked, quantitatively multiplied little sacrifices, renunciations, appealing glances, and intentions. Wait, doesn't that constitute most of our spiritual life? <laughs> it does. But he's saying, yeah, it's more than that. He's not saying that those things are bad. He's saying it's more than that. It has to be organically unified across the whole spectrum of our personality. It does not lead through a petty decomposition of God's commandments into innumerable rules, dominating every situation in life from the outside The way to true personality leads rather through the opening of oneself in the depths to the exposing of oneself to the Son, S-O-S-U-N, of God, God's Son, to let the light of his grace shine into our hearts. It means being filled with joy by the glory of God, longing to see and to know oneself in his light and in confrontation with him. That's what leads to the transformation when we see how weak and small we are compared to his plans for us. This path leads through a love enkindled by the divine beauty of Christ, a love which gives ardor and power to one's will to walk in the ways of the Lord. It implies making room in oneself for the life implanted in us by baptism, giving God the opportunity to speak in us and watching before the Lord. It means especially the clear understanding that we are impotent to form Christ in our soul by our own efforts. He's not saying that our own efforts are meaningless in that regard, but that if it's only our own efforts, impotency there in Christ will never be formed within us. Rather, the Lord must transform us. We cannot save our soul by our own power, but only by the power of Christ. It requires prayer for the right thoughts and decisions, prayer for love, and a grasp of the fact that our task is only a free cooperation with grace, 
a letting of ourselves be transformed by God. So again, uh, feel free. We already see some people breaking, if you will, for the bathroom. Help yourself. We're going to keep the conversation going. We have beverages and such. So I want to take questions for Father Adam. If I could actually, uh, the first one is as a father of seven children, one in heaven. Father, you're a pastor. And I think Pope Benedict perhaps summarized part of the challenge or condition that is put on center stage by liturgy and personality of von Hildebrand, and that is the, the phrase practical atheism. In so many words that there is a capacity for us to perfectly observe religious rubrics, but our souls to be far from God, our, our interior dispositions from, from knowing God, and which of us parents and grandparents don't desire our kids and grandkids to truly know Jesus. Um, and so my question to you is, how do you advise us as parents, as a pastor to us as parents, to foster more than just a religious religiosity, I might say, an externalism, uh, per, which is all significant, all important, but how, how might you advise us, knowing what you know in this day and age, to truly cultivate the dispositions at the heart of the disciplines to be truly uh, to truly know Jesus Christ, I think a big factor is to be uh, open to um, sharing how the Lord has worked in one's own life in order to be transformed in Christ. So, um, if it comes across as mere rules, if living in Christ comes across as mere rules, anybody's going to reject that, and naturally that they would. But if it comes across as I have sought to live by Christ, and that has been tremendously meaningful to me than sharing that story with others, um, in particular those given over to our charge, is going to also then be in some way meaningful to them. It still cannot be commanded, and you can do all the right things, and your child can still reject God. So that's where prayer comes in, and not to be too cramped, but 70% of our efforts should be prayer, 20% sacrifice, 10% action. And tell us who you are, just so we can kind of build familiarity and community. This man is a mover and shaker in our community for for so many things, the pro-life in particular. And Tim Clark, I sit on the board with Mr. McCartney here, uh, Foundation for Life. And a question, Father, uh, and maybe you said this, but under the uh, third definition, personality, uh, the two aspects, obviously one cannot be changed, knowing, willing, and healing, but obviously through Romans 12 transformation, are we saying that's where that changes, which therefore uh, relinquishes our, actually it pro procreates our dependence upon God. Is that correct? Am I thinking right? Yeah. What I mean, I that can be changed by God through transformation. Right. Yeah. Well, so there's two aspects to that. The mm -hmm. first is our knowing, mm -hmm. our willing, and our, our feeling. feeling or affectivity. Mm -hmm. um, they are gifts in themselves, but they are gifts that mm -hmm. are affected by original sin. Correct. So the state of being born into separation from God has a deep effect upon those three aspects of the human person. We could say wounded, but not entirely corrupted. Correct. Um, and so God's grace does, um, when we enter into it, when um, you could say that the state of original sin is healed through faith right. and baptism, then the intellect 
is improved, and right. the the will is made stronger, and the heart is more um, more oriented towards giving the right response in love. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, then, and that kind of indirectly also mm-hmm. affects then our openness to importance in itself, right? Um, so, um, original sin tends a person in the direction of being turned in upon oneself. And so to being transformed and renewed in Christ mm-hmm. is to get over that. And so mm-hmm. the openness to value is the significant way in which we get over that. I worry a little bit sometimes that the term mm-hmm. value sounds too impersonal, right? No, okay. But each of us as human persons, um, we are we possess, you could say, the value of the human person. But not just that, right? Mm-hmm. You possess the the particular value of you as a human person, yeah. right? And so um, uh, that all, in a sense, gets healed in your openness to the world of value, to God as a personal being, to other personal beings, all happens um, with the gift of grace. That's good. Yeah, we have an offline. I just thought that was interesting in Romans 12 where Paul talks about latreo, spiritual worship mm-hmm. in there, which yeah, is exactly. correlating with the liturgy that Hildebrand talks about. Yep. So I thought that was interesting. The liturgy That's, of life is yeah. giving the right response in all things um, so that when one sees a moral situation, a morally relevant situation that one gives the right response to that and does good and avoids evil. That's the liturgy of life. Thank you. Yep, sure. Andrew Reinhardt, who works up at our diocese, brand new, used to run the cathedral in so many words, and uh, on our board, just have to give accolades to my brother here and uh, look for him and awaken Catholics, some great insightful teaching on this body-soul composite that he is such a gift to us. And anyways. Thank you. Um, so the some of the backdrop of von Hildebrandt, kind of in the soup of German philosophy at the time, is sort of against previous thinkers saying things like, while things have value, they don't give us their value, right? They withhold their value from us. Um, so things don't just have value, they they give their value, and, and we need to receive it. So if, if we're not perception. receiving value, it's a defect on the part of the receiver, not on the part of the giver. Right. Um, so, so thinking of that as a foundation, it makes me ponder uh, something contemporary like social media. Um, so maybe three questions, if I could be entertained. Um, the first would be, does a representation of a thing carry in itself the value of the thing or do we only experience that value by analogy, by assigning it based on previous experience of that thing in reality? That would be, in, in some sense, um, true, but um, it it depends on the, the what God desires to put into it, right? So I'm thinking of the Holy Eucharist. Um, uh, what God desires to put into that is a deeper reality than what is apparent, right? Mm-hmm. So what looks like a mere symbol becomes something deeper. Right, but what about your like Facebook profile picture? <laughs> does that carry in itself, does that communicate your value? Or I, do I only receive that value in my previous experience of you? And then that pointing toward that. You can draw a conclusion of your previous experience with other persons. Mm-hmm. Now, are certain aspects of who you are in particular manifested through your face? I would say yes. Mm-hmm. And so to have an image of that also can manifest something of you. 
Right. So, so I'd probably I, be in a minority and saying, yes, that it does. It does. Okay, so that's hopeful. Because it seems like we have a whole generation of people being formed in a way the technology forms us to assign value to things that are giving us their value, right? Whether it be like the most egregious form being like Tinder, you swipe right or swipe left based on the attractiveness of the photo or the scrolling through a news feed or Facebook feed or, yeah. or through YouTube all, videos or something like that. All of those things go together to manifest the personality of an individual, mm. right? Um, so I would even argue things as, as seemingly superficial as how a person greets another person all manifest the, the, the particular personality of the individual. You don't make your entire judgment on those individual things, but they conspire, so to speak, to give a full picture in the long run. And so um, uh, I would say yes. Now, but I would also say real encounter is far better than a virtual encounter with anybody mm. ever. Okay. That's encouraging because then the third question would be something like live streaming mass, for example. Is that actually evangelical or are we actually obscuring what's being given to us by putting it out there by that medium? It depends on the messaging given. If the messaging given is that this is the equivalent of a real encounter, it's not. And so it would be problematic to say that it is. Thankfully, I don't think anybody's out there saying that it is. Maybe among the faithful, but not, not among the, the priests or the bishops. Right. They're not saying, oh, it's equal. You, know. you have now crossed into the nerd zone. <laughs> it's good, though. What Dietrich von Hildebrand communicates to us is the fabric of truth and faith that he's a student of, and it will contribute to our own reverence, our own relationship with God, and it will inform the way, what's wrong with the world by the, the opposite. But it, it's important to understand these things because clearly something's wrong. Clearly there's a wrench in the machine of God's design of our parenting, of our humanity, of our religion, of our faith, and he's, we, we gotta kinda do the work and, and kind of do the work and understand some of these dynamics that are true that God desires so deeply for us to understand. So. I hear a lot in the little bit of media that I involve myself with, I hear a lot of raging against social engineering. Social engineering should not be a part of our school, should not be a part of our et cetera. Guess what? We're in the business of social engineering according to the mind of God, right? And so we are in a fallen world, a, a world that needs a savior. And thank heavens we have one in Jesus Christ. So it is precisely our job, all of us, to socially engineer um, so as to transform others in Christ. And why do we do that? We do it for the glory of God, and we do it for love of neighbor. We do it for a transcendent motive, not a self-centered motive. The minute it becomes a self-centered motive, then its efficacy becomes greatly reduced, if not eliminated. I read the book and I see a profound, faithful, evangelical heart. I read somebody who's deeply attuned to our design to know, love, and serve God in a personal way, but by the way he has, God has revealed that makes us better. By the way, one benefit of uh, us moving from our house to this place for our Belief in Beverages nights um, are the, uh, the party favors that you get to take home with you. Everybody gets a car tonight. <laughs> you just got to pay for it. So, Rich. Hi, Rich uh, Cronin. Um, what would Von Hildebrand say about the world today in regards to truth? 
And um, specifically, I mean, uh, the the relativity of the world, but more, I guess, more importantly about the absurdity of the world. Like, you know, somebody who believes there's a hundred genders or somebody who believes that I'm a man instead of a woman. But like truth has become so absurd in some cases, I can't understand why people can't recognize truth for what it is. And that's a struggle I have. Why why can't people recognize it? But what would von Hildebrand so, say about that? Uh, several thoughts. Uh, first thought is academia tends to lead culture by several decades, right? Von Hildebrand foresaw all of this. And um, while I don't usually recommend his more cranky works um, off the bat, they are worth reading. And so he wrote several cranky works in the 19th. 60s um, up until maybe the early 1970s, that he predicts every single thing that we're going through for the most part and um, and uh, does so where you're reading it and you're saying that's exactly the world in which we live. So the first of those books was, um, let's see, Trojan Horse in the City of God, meaning that error is creeping into society and the church in a Trojan Horse kind of manner. Um, and then the second one is, the devastated vineyard, meaning that the enemy is now uh, left the Trojan horse and is waging open battle in the vineyard of the Lord. And then the third book is called The Charitable Anathema, which was a recommendation to the bishops as to how to fix all this problem that we need to go through and just anathematize, uh, declare as erroneous evil to believe is worthy of damnation, all of these terrible thoughts and ideas. So in a nutshell, that's von Hildebrand's um, sort of tack on things. But your the second there's a second part to your question, which is, how does he see this um, in the world? What is going on? What's the dynamic going on? And so, in his work, um, uh, I would say, in his work, um, Christian ethics, um, he describes all of the many sources of value blindness, how a person gets to a spot where they're blind to truth, beauty, and goodness and how they can even hold, as you said, absurd positions. And what is an absurd position? An absurd position is a position which is inherently contradictory. Um, so um, the, the realist, um, so we, we would say there is such a thing as truth, right? And then you can follow that statement up with a second true statement. There is such a thing as truth is true. And you can follow that up with a third statement that repeats it and says that is true. So you have an infinite regress of true statements, all of which are true from the very beginning. Absurdity is the relativist position, which says there's no such thing as truth. The second statement is it is true that there is no such thing as truth. That's an inherent absurdity. It's an inherent contradiction. That's what we call absurdity. How does someone get themselves to a spot where they're governing their life by those principles, he speaks to the various ways in which we become blind to value, to truth, beauty, and goodness. Um, the number one way, um, well, you'd say, he, he takes it along classic lines, um, that is pride and concupiscence. And the way he, he describes it is one of the most fundamental things is when we have a choice presented to us that is a choice between the subjectively satisfying or the important in itself. So when I choose the subjectively satisfying over the importance in itself, I usually do that the first time knowing it. 
But when I repeatedly do it, I become blind even to the choice itself, and I simply automatically go to the subjectively satisfying. And so in that regards, um, von Hildebrand speaks deeply to the, the nature of sin and, and how terribly rooted it can become within a person. Um, um, so much so that they don't even realize that they're sinning anymore. How many people tell me, well, I go to confession, but I don't really have any sins to confess. I don't have any sins to confess. <laughs> um, maybe you're not looking hard enough, or maybe you're blind to those sins. You can at least go to confession. Father, for all the sins I'm blind, forgive me. You know, we can say, okay. I mean, the psalmist said that. So, but yeah, uh, lots of different things, um, lots of different uh, motives um, that cause us to become blind to these things which are important in themselves. Other questions? Ben and Bethany Buckmeyer. Father, what would you say, this is sort of maybe the opposite of the prior question, what would you say are one or two of the most important things we can do to teach our children reverence, the state of kind of seeing and living outside of themselves? And so far as that's kind of a necessary condition to respond to value. Expose them to those things which are of the highest value. And um, and uh, you wouldn't want to do that in a narrow way, right? So you don't want to expose your children simply to value as it presents itself in religion. That's a, necess a necessity. You, you have to do that. But there are tons of other values, and they should be exposed to those things too. So what is beauty, for example? Um, so um, Americans are often made fun of in, in Italy um, for their barbarian type attitude, right? So that um, you'll hear, <laughs> here's an example, for example, um, uh, a, a tour of St. Peter's, right? A spectacularly beautiful church. And the American raises his hand, how much does it weigh? Who cares? <laughs> there's, there's like nothing important about how much this church weighs. Or, uh, so um, uh, exposure to beauty um, and to goodness and to the truth, um, it has to be cultivated, right? And so it's a great temptation and at times absolutely necessary for the parent to plop their child down in front of the TV and just let the TV get into their mind and take it over, right? Now, <laughs> sometimes that might be necessary if something else has to be done, but it takes effort and work to expose the child to something which is inherently valuable, right? To instead go outside and explore nature, right? The exploration of the environment of nature, of, of the goodness of God's creation, um, does a tremendous good in terms of transforming a person. Um, so all of those kind of things. Von Hildebrand, who loved classical music, he would say, expose them to classical music, right? I happen to be an odd person. I hated rock and roll. I never cared for rock and roll ever, um, but was kind of drawn to classical music, not a huge devotee of it, but I always heard something in it that was better. Um, it takes work to cultivate that in most people, right? And so doing whatever you can, applying the work to cultivate it, and as they say, you can just lead the horse to water. You can't make the horse drink. Um, what does a pastor desire most of their parishioners? When you go to bed at night and you pray for us, gosh, I just wish they... We're transformed in Christ, right? So I wish it for myself and I wish it for my people. And that's very simply put, but it's the sole motive by which I work, right, or operate. That each person would be transformed in Christ as Christ would have them be transformed. Father, I don't have so much of a question, but something that just kind of pondered in my mind, and we've kind of talked about it before, is that um, the devil doesn't create anything, but he 
he simply distorts truth. He distorts what is beautiful. So when you were talking about this wakefulness, um, a, a term that came into my head that's very popular in secular culture is being woke, this wokefulness. So I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit on how we've gone from a society that's wakeful and, you know, um, preparing, no, not knowing when Christ is coming and just having this desire for him to this society now that we're all trying to be woke or this wokefulness. Yeah, so I think the the anger that people manifest with towards wokefulness is not towards the the fundamental concept, but it's toward what values are we trying to promote, right? And so um, uh, would that every person and corporate person, like a company or whatever, was woke to the value of the human person and woke to the evil of abortion, right? So um, in the sense, wakefulness and being woke is the same thing. Von Hildebrand is proposing that. It's just what are the issues and how are they being worked out, I think, is where people get upset. They get worked up over. Um, what are the issues? Like, well, that's not a real issue or that doesn't really happen back and forth, right? Um, so... Um, uh, I thought of the same thing when I was putting stuff together. I thought, yeah, there's a lot of similarity there. Um, uh, so, yeah, to have our eyes open to both that which is good and that which is evil and to seek to do our best to stomp out that which is evil, no problem. We tend to get upset when we're the, on the losing side of it, right? So, like, if we were to say, um, well, I want uh, major corporations not to sponsor Planned Parenthood, but they are. Well, that makes us angry, right? So what should we do? Not decry the state of being awake, but rather to work harder and pray harder, I suppose, um, to get their eyes open, the leadership in those companies, to open their eyes to the gift of human life, the value of human life, and not to support abortion. Thank you, Father, for being with us, and we'll continue. We can hang out for a little bit longer. Please partake of the uh, beverages that we have here. I'm so glad in particular that Mrs. Hertzfeld is here. Why? Because if we run out of wine, you can go to her and she'll say, do what my son tells you, and you're going to get even better wine than what you had in the beginning. So we're really grateful for that. So, Father, if we could just get your blessing. Why don't we all stand and receive a blessing? And again, invite you to hang out a little longer. May the blessings of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you always. Thank you very much. God bless you all. You are listening to A Belief in Beverages Night on Ignite Radio Live, and we warmly invite you to join us for these monthly occasions, the third Thursdays typically of every month, beginning at 6.30 p.m., absolutely free. You do need to register, though, because of limited seating, and it does fill rather quickly, but you can find out more at massimpact.us forward slash BNB. And as always, please join us in this great adventure of encountering God more fully alive in our marriages and families. Join us in the journey at ilovemyfamily.us. God bless you.